You're listening to Jar of Hearts by Jennifer Hillier. Read for you by January Lavoie. Mo has long blonde hair, warm brown eyes, an easy grin, and a drooling problem. That's because Mo is a dog. And not just any dog, but a cadaver dog. The golden retriever's tail thumps on the grass as Kaiser approaches the tree he's resting under, about 20 feet from where he found the bodies, in the woods behind St. Martin's High School. He and Kaiser have met a few times before. Mo's owner looks up and smiles. In her early 60s, Jane Bowman is dressed in hiking gear, waterproof shell jacket from the North Face, dry-fit pants, morel boots, No makeup, but Kaiser's never known her to wear any, and her long gray hair is pulled back from her face with a black scrunchie. Thought you two were retired, he says to Jane with a smile, and they embrace warmly. Thought we were too, she says, and Mo stands up. He nudges Kaiser, who kneels and gives the dog a full minute of pats before straightening up again. So walk me through what happened. Well, you know, Mo's an old guy now, like me. Jane says, looking down at the furry yellow face with fondness. The dog is resting on the grass once again, gnawing on a chew toy, unbothered by the activity of the police officers and crime scene technicians not far away. Bones are getting creaky, hips are starting to go, and so it was time for us both to retire last year. But working dogs, just like working people, tend to get bored in their retirement. So you can imagine how happy he was to be walking through the woods this morning and suddenly pick up a scent. We were on the east side of the woods on the trail when he got all excited, put his nose to the ground and started running. At first I didn't know whether to restrain him or let him go, but I hadn't seen that zest in him in a long time. So I let him run and followed him. Bad hips be damned. He finally zeroes in on the spot and stands there and barks and barks. I caught up to him and saw that the earth had been disturbed. I didn't realize we had made it all the way through the woods to the high school. If you were on the path on the east end, you two had to have come almost a quarter of a mile, Kaiser says, marveling at the old dog. Mo looks up and grins. Around that, yeah. Anyway, I know the drill. Called an old friend at Seattle PD to ask if you guys wanted to come see if there's something in the ground. Took a few hours for you guys to show up, but you did. Jane smiles. And wouldn't you know, there is. Kaiser reaches down, gives the dog another pat. Hope he got a cookie. Gave him two. He earned it. She pauses, her smile fading. I caught a glimpse of what they dug up. Pretty bad what happened to the woman. And a child. Wow. Hope you catch the bastard, Kai. They say their goodbyes, and Kaiser heads back to the crime scene. Two bodies like the time before. The woman looks to be a few years older than Claire Tolliver, the last victim. The child, a girl this time, is a bit older as well, maybe three or four. Her Elsa doll from the movie Frozen was found a few feet away. Other than that, the scene is identical. The woman was dismembered, the child strangled, and on the little girl's chest was the same heart drawn with the same lipstick. Inside the heart were the same words. See me. Like Claire Tolliver, the woman's eyes are gouged out. 
empty sockets where they once were, the edges rough. And like Claire Tolliver, Kaiser doesn't feel optimistic they'll find them. He wonders if the killer keeps them in a jar somewhere, like Ed Gain, or if he eats them, like Jeffrey Dahmer, or if he simply throws them away, the act of scraping them out satisfying enough on its own. What's the significance? See me. What does the killer want them to see? Or is it some kind of punishment to the woman? All women? One specific woman? For not seeing? Kim stands beside him. He can hear the scratching of his partner's pencil against her notepad, and the sound is intrusive and irritating. The act of writing things down gives them significance in her mind, helps her remember things later. Kaiser doesn't work this way, never has. He takes mental pictures, allowing his thoughts to meander unrestricted where they will. He also prefers to do this quietly, and her scratchy note-taking is ruining his silence. They haven't spoken on a personal level in a couple of days, and he notices she's wearing her wedding band. She normally doesn't while she's on the job or when she's alone with him, so he's not sure what makes today special. Perhaps she and Dave had a good weekend away, celebrating their anniversary, rekindling the fire in their marriage. He's curious, but he'll never ask her. It isn't his business and honestly never was. The only thing deader than their affair were the two bodies in the ground, one of them in pieces. Kim tucks her notebook away. You think she's Calvin James's daughter too? I don't think anything right now, he replies. His tone is a bit more hostile than he intended, and he adds, We'll find out soon enough. I don't get it. She shakes her head, blonde ponytail swinging, her face twisted into a grimace. Kaiser understands. It's hard seeing victims this way, especially children. And that's fine. It should never be easy. It should never not be horrifying. Why kill your own child? And if this is similar to the other case, why kill her mother? Why take her eyes? This is so confusing. I can't even begin to make sense of it. Lesson number one when dealing with serial murder is that it never makes sense, Kaiser says. Calvin James isn't like you or me. He might have been once, but he's morphed into something else. His sociopathy was clear when I arrested him five years ago. They don't operate in logic. The whys of it are unimportant. He can save that for his prison shrink. All I care about is catching the motherfucker. Got the ID on the little girl, detective, an officer says, coming up behind him and waving a cell phone. Parents filed a missing person report this morning. I have it here. I can forward it to you. A moment later, it's on Kaiser's phone. He opens up the document, scrolls through it. Who is it? Kim asks. He hands her the phone, lets her read it for herself. The child's name is Emily Rudd. Her birthday was two days ago. She just turned four. She went missing from her home in Issaquah, a city about 30 minutes east of Seattle. Same story as with Henry. Parents woke up to find her gone. Didn't panic immediately as Emily was a sleepwalker, and they'd found her in various places inside the house before this. Issaquah police had no reason to suspect foul play. But it was foul play, of the very foulest kind. Jesus, Kim says, handing the phone back. Those poor parents. Have that officer look into whether she was adopted. 
I put a rush on the DNA, but if we can confirm that the child is adopted, that will tell us enough to get started. Keep working on the woman's ID in the meantime. Will do. But I think we need to talk with Georgina Shaw. She's the only person we know of who had any kind of intimate relationship with Calvin James and is still alive. Have you been in contact with her? A little. He feels his jaw clench, tries to stop it. But she catches it and knows instantly what the facial tick means. Kai, Kim says, shocked. And he can hear from her tone in that one syllable that she knows what he's been up to. But he doesn't want to hear about it. Not from her. They're both guilty of bad judgment, and she's in no place to lecture him. She does anyway. You can't be serious. She's a person of interest in this case. She has nothing to do with it. It's completely inappropriate. He turns to her. Pretty sure I don't need a lecture from you about which relationships are inappropriate, he says softly. Kim's face reddens. Okay, I deserved that, she says, admonished. She looks over her shoulder to make sure nobody nearby can hear them. But still, if you're involved with her because you're upset with me, I really think- Don't flatter yourself, Kaiser says with a small smile. Seriously. I'm happy you and Dave are back on track. We fucked for a while, it's over now, and it's cool. But it means my personal life is no longer your concern. Got it? Kim looks as if she's been slapped. Her cheeks flush deep crimson and her eyes fill with tears. She turns away, wiping her face quickly, pulling herself together. He knows they'll never speak of it again, and he won't be surprised if she puts in for a transfer once this case is closed. That's the thing with affairs. They are, by definition, a temporary relationship. They always end one way or another, and they almost always end badly. Detective. A different officer is standing behind Kaiser, cell phone in his hand. He touches Kaiser's shoulder. The parents just arrived at the precinct. That was fast. They both work here in Seattle, the officer says. He indicates the phone in his hand, the call from the precinct still connected. What should I tell them? I'm on my way. Grief manifests differently in different people, and Kaiser learned a long time ago to stop judging. You can't tell people how they're supposed to feel, when they're supposed to feel it, or how they're supposed to show it. Daniel Rudd and Laura Friedman, Emily Rudd's parents, nearly collapse at the news of their young daughter's death at first, crying and shaking and wanting details Kaiser doesn't have yet. He assures them her death was quick and that there were no outward signs of abuse. They demand to see her, but the bodies are being examined in the morgue. Kaiser shows them a picture instead, the kindest one he has where it appears the little girl might be sleeping, and they confirm it's their daughter. Less than an hour later, they're calm and polite, almost professional in their demeanor. Their eyes are bloodshot, but dry. They sit close to each other, breathing and speaking normally, but not touching. Daniel Rudd is a cardiothoracic surgeon at Harborview Medical Center, and Laura Friedman is a pediatric surgeon at Seattle Children's Hospital. Kaiser can only assume that their professions are the reason they're able to compartmentalize this way. They have two other children, twin boys conceived via in vitro fertilization. Sean and Shane are six years old, and Laura Friedman shows Kaiser a picture of her sons sitting on a park bench with their little sister in between them. Emily bears no physical resemblance to her brothers. 
They're blonde and blue-eyed while she had dark hair and dark eyes. But the bond among the three of them is unmistakable. Their parents confirm Emily was adopted. Even after the twins, it didn't quite feel like our family was complete, Lara says, hands in her lap. The coffee Kaiser brought her from the precinct's break room is cooling in its paper cup, untouched. I couldn't go through IVF again, so we started the adoption process through a Christian agency that specializes in placing babies born to unwed teenage mothers. What can you tell me about Emily's biological parents? Kaiser asks. Why is that important? Daniel Rudd frowns beside his wife. They're not in the picture. Sasha wouldn't even tell us the father's name. He's not aware she even had a child. Sasha's the biological mother? Yes, the man stares at him. Again, why does it matter? She never had a relationship with Emily after she gave birth. It's relevant to the case, Kaiser says gently. That's all I can say for now, but I would appreciate any details you can give me. Her name is Sasha Robinson, Lara says, giving her husband a look that shuts him up. She was actually a sweet girl. We met about halfway through her pregnancy. We invited her to our house to spend time with us and the boys. She was 18 then, living with her grandmother in a trailer park. High school dropout, recovering drug addict. She grew up poor, and it was clear that it was extremely important to her to have her baby go to a family with money. She emphasized that she wanted her child to have access to the best education, and she thought it was great we already had twin boys because the baby would always have big brothers to protect her. She stops then, her voice choking. We saw her twice during the pregnancy, and then once right after she gave birth, Daniel says, sounding defeated. Then we didn't see or speak to her again for over two years. It was her choice. She was doing drugs again. She was in no shape to see Emily. We told her if she got clean, we'd be okay with limited contact, but she said she didn't want to meet Emily even if she was clean. Deep down, it was a relief. That kind of thing can get complicated. But you had contact with Sasha when Emily was two? Kaiser asks. We called her, Lara says. We were experiencing serious behavioral problems with Emily hyperactivity that was well beyond what was normal for a child that age. She was quick to anger and very aggressive, even violent. Hitting, biting, clawing, shoving. She even tried to choke Shane once when he wouldn't let her play with a toy she wanted. There were actually times when the boys were scared of her. The obvious decision was to medicate, Daniel says, but we opted not to. Those meds for ADHD can turn a kid into a zombie. We put her in therapy instead, changed her diet, hired an extra nanny part-time to take some of the burden off Maria. Maria is... The full-time nanny, Lara says. She lives with us. Did the extra support help? Not even a little bit. She was a really difficult child. It was hard. She bites her lip, looks away, the guilt of having said something negative about her dead daughter etched all over her face. And what about the father, Kaiser asks. Did you ever learn anything about him? All Sasha would say is that their relationship was very brief, Daniel says. Sounded like a fling, maybe even a one-time thing. She wouldn't tell us his name. Or maybe she never knew it, 
Lara sighs. Of course, if you ask her, maybe she'll be more forthcoming. She no longer speaks to us. And she never will again. Why's that? Kaiser asks. When we talked to her about Emily a couple of years ago, we told her we needed to take a complete genetic history, Daniel says. We told Sasha that while we understood she didn't want to tell us anything about Emily's biological father, it was necessary to know more about him in order to help our daughter. We explained about the violence, the aggression, that we were concerned she might hurt her brothers. The conversation upset her. She hung up on us and never returned our calls again. Emily Rudd's parents seem like practical people. Determined, eager to be helpful, motivated to get the answer in the most efficient way possible. Kaiser decides it's time to be honest with them. I want to be straight with you here, he says. When we found Emily, we found another victim as well. A woman. The parents exchange a look. You think it's Sasha, Daniel says flatly. You must, or else you wouldn't have asked all those questions. Look, like I told you, Sasha had zero relationship with Emily. Any contact we had with her was between us. Is it okay if I show you a picture? Kaiser asks, pulling out his phone. It's of the female victim. Lara shakes her head. Sighing, Daniel holds his hand out for the phone. Kaiser figured out how to use the sensor bar app Kim downloaded for Claire Tolliver, and he'd crop the photo to show only the victim's face. He doesn't plan to tell Emily's parents that the woman was dismembered and that the head isn't actually attached to a body. The man looks at the photo. His expression doesn't change. Again, Kaiser figures it must be his surgeon's poker face. Well, it certainly resembles Sasha. Same nose, same chin. What's with the black bar? There's significant damage to the eye area. Daniel rolls his eyes. I'm a trauma surgeon, detective. I had a teenager come in the other week with a detached eyeball due to head trauma. Popped out during a football game and was dangling from his goddamned eye socket. I see things like that and much worse every day. If you show me the uncensored version, I can probably verify that it's her. Kaiser sighs, swipes to change the photo. The uncensored photo causes Daniel Rudd to blink exactly once, but that's it. The man is unshakable. Yes, he says. That's Sasha. Short and to the point. Lara makes no move to look at the phone, so Kaiser slips it back into his pocket. How was she killed? Daniel asks, standing up. He begins to pace. The calm demeanor is beginning to fade. Strangulation, we think, Kaiser says, and stops there. We'll confirm cause of death later today. Why did you want to know about Emily's biological father? From the tone of Daniel's voice, it's clear he's growing agitated. Do you think he had something to do with this? When Kaiser doesn't respond right away, he stops pacing. My God, you do. We're looking at him as a suspect, yes. But you don't know his name, Daniel says. He exchanges another look with his wife. Oh, hell, you do. I can't believe this. Lara's voice cracks and she buries her face in her hands. The grief pushed away earlier is beginning to surge back and her breathing is becoming shallow. 
You think Emily's own biological father killed her and Sasha? What kind of depraved? She stops, then gasps, as if hearing what she just said. It was genetic. Her breathing becomes more rapid, and a light sheen of sweat appears above her brow. That's where Emily got it from. Oh, God. Oh, God, I don't understand any of this. Why would he kill his own child? Deep breaths, Daniel says, looking over at his wife with concern, pacing once again. I know what to do, Lara snaps. It's the first time she's spoken sharply to her husband. She takes several deep breaths, her chest expanding and contracting in an exaggerated way, and after a half dozen or so breaths, she calms down. You should talk to Sasha's grandmother. She mentioned they were close, that her grandmother was the only person who stood by her through the drugs and the drinking. She might be able to confirm whether the person who murdered our daughter is the person you're thinking it is. What's his name? Daniel asks. He's sitting beside his wife, but they're inches apart, not touching, not looking at each other. The killer. I'd rather not say until I know for sure, Kaiser says. Well, I hope you catch the son of a bitch, the man says. And I hope he tries to attack you so you can kill him. Dan, his wife says, but her voice is weak. She's not disagreeing. At this point, secretly, Kaiser doesn't disagree either. The Willows is a pretty name for a group of rundown trailers in a clearing off Highway 99. There are about four dozen of them in various sizes, all dirty, propped up on two-by-fours. In the middle of the trailer park are a handful of wood picnic tables and a rundown play center for kids, complete with a broken swing set and a cracked slide. The place is depressing, and despite the name, there's not a willow tree in sight. Emily Rudd's biological great-grandmother lives in a trailer at the back of the park, indistinguishable from the rest, save for four rose bushes not currently in bloom. Kaiser imagines they'll look quite beautiful in the spring. Stepping up onto the cracked wood porch, he knocks on the door. An elderly woman answers. Round and bosomy, she appraises him through the chipped screen. Her fluffy hair is mostly white with a few specks of black, her blue floral print house dress clean and pressed. Reading glasses hang around her neck attached to a string of tiny seashells. Can I help you? She says through the screen. Kaiser holds up his badge. Sorry to disturb you, ma'am. I'm looking for Caroline Robinson. You found her? He blinks, surprised. Emily Rudd appeared to be white, as did her biological mother, so Kaiser assumed that Sasha's grandmother would be white too. But the woman standing in front of him is black, her skin the color of coffee with a few drops of cream. Serves him right for making assumptions. I'm Detective Kaiser Brody, Seattle PD. I'm here to talk to you about Sasha. The woman's eyes narrow. She has to be in her mid-80s, but he has the feeling that she's sharp as a tack. What are you accusing her of now? It's an interesting way to phrase the question. As the grandmother of a drug addict, Kaiser might have expected a more weary response. But the woman is already on Sasha's side, which will make the death notification even harder. Not a thing, ma'am, he says. Can I come in? Then she's dead. Caroline Robinson's voice is steady, but the screen door jiggles a bit. 
He would have preferred to tell her inside, but she's not giving him a choice. Yes, ma'am, she is. I'm so sorry. Come in. She opens the screen door. Kaiser steps into the trailer, which turns out to be larger than it looks from the outside. The entryway is between the kitchen and the living room, marked by a colorful doormat that reads welcome in bold letters. The kitchen is light blue, the cabinets painted white with clear plastic knobs. Floral curtains hang at the window, and potted wildflowers brighten up the small round table, which could comfortably seat three, four if you squished. Appliances are circa the early 1980s, but pristine. The living room is pale yellow, the brown carpet frayed, but spotless. It's sparsely decorated with a plaid sofa bed and wooden coffee table, a 32-inch flat-screen TV on the console. Ellen is on, but the volume's been muted. At the back of the trailer are two bedrooms. It's as nice a trailer as Kaiser has ever seen. The smell of fresh coffee permeates the space, and he spies a fresh pot on the counter. Would you like a cup? Mrs. Robinson asks, following his gaze. I know it's the afternoon, but it's my one vice. We have that in common, Kaiser says, and I would love one. Thank you. She pours for them both, then gestures to the counter where she's laid out cream and sugar. He declines both and waits while she fixes her coffee and then settles herself at the small table. What happened to my granddaughter? She asks after they've both taken a sip. Kaiser senses Caroline Robinson as the kind of woman who's been through a lot and can handle a lot and would prefer no sugarcoating, only the truth. He won't insult her by giving her anything less. Sasha's body was found early this morning, buried in a shallow grave in the woods behind St. Martin's High School. Buried? She frowns. I don't understand. I assumed it was an overdose. She's been clean for over six months, but drug addiction is a wicked thing, detective. Kaiser nods. We'll be checking for drugs in her system, but for now, it looks like she was murdered. A sharp intake of breath. How? Strangled. He pauses, then says, her biological daughter was found with her. Also strangled. Caroline Robinson's head snaps up. Emily's dead? Yes, ma'am. I'm deeply sorry. Lord help me, the woman whispers. Her lip quivers, and for a moment, Kaiser thinks she's going to cry. But she doesn't. The quiver passes, and she straightens up again, fixing him with those sharp eyes. Do Emily's parents know? I was just with them. Sasha didn't have a relationship with Emily, Mrs. Robinson says, her forehead creasing. I wanted her to when Emily was older, but Sasha thought it was a bad idea. She didn't want her baby to know who she was. She wanted a better life for her. What were they even doing together? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out. The woman looks at him closely. I can spot a liar from a hundred feet, detective. Comes with living with drug addicts my whole life. What aren't you telling me? You're deliberately leaving something out, and I would very much like to know what it is. If it were appropriate, Kaiser would smile. But it isn't. Sasha was... We found her body dismembered, ma'am. It likely happened after her death, he adds, as if that makes it better. There was a similar murder not long ago, 
a woman and her biological child were killed and buried the same way. Lord help me, the old woman says again. Her coffee cup shakes, and she sets it down on top of a coaster made of cork. She cries for a few moments, and Kaiser looks away in an effort to give her some privacy. Then she pulls a handkerchief from her dress pocket and dabs her eyes, calming herself. I've been through a lot, but this takes the cake. Someone cut my baby girl up? Why? I don't know, ma'am, he says, and it's the truth. I'm so sorry. It's the one piece he hasn't figured out yet. Other than Angela, none of Calvin James's other victims were dismembered, and Kaiser's best guess is that the Sweet Bay Strangler is somehow trying to recapture how it felt that first time with Angela Wong. You said this is similar to another crime. Is it a serial killer? We have a theory that it might be, yes, he says. Caroline Robinson lets out a long breath. I've expected someone like you to show up for years now to tell me Sasha was dead, but not quite like this. She speaks plainly. My granddaughter's been an addict since she was 14, treated her body like a garbage can. Started by smoking weed in the woods behind the trailer park with the other kids. Almost an impossible thing to prevent when it's the parents' stashes they're helping themselves to. Eventually, she graduated to painkillers, mine mostly, and when she ran out of those, she started on heroin. That was the beginning of the end. In and out of drug treatment for three years. She was living here when she got pregnant, and I actually thought it might have been the best thing that happened to her because it forced her to get clean. I didn't even have to ask her. When she got the positive pregnancy test, she just stopped cold turkey. And I said to myself, thank the Lord. Maybe the dark days are over. I assumed she was keeping the baby and that we'd raise the child together. Kaiser nods. Three months into her pregnancy, it hit her what she was in for. She asked me what I thought about adoption, and I told her I'd support whatever she wanted to do. She went back and forth for a bit. The crease between the woman's brows deepens, and she looks away, remembering. One day she wanted it, the next day she didn't. She was terrified the baby would grow up to be like her. Despite my best efforts, Sasha had very little self-esteem. Her mother, my daughter, was a junkie too. Got stabbed in the neck fighting with another junkie when Sasha was only two. She never knew her father. He died of an overdose the year she was born. Sasha never finished high school, but she was far from stupid. She recognized the pattern, knew that if she raised her baby here, the chances were that the same thing that happened to her parents and to her would happen to her little girl. She wanted better for her baby. Kaiser offered a small smile. You seem to be doing well. I don't have the gene, Mrs. Robinson said flatly. Whatever thing it is that makes a person an addict, I don't have it. My father was a raging alcoholic, but my mother never touched a drop. Oh, I tried it once. Took a shot of my father's whiskey when he wasn't looking. Found it disgusting. Smoked once, too, and felt physically ill for a whole day after. They say addiction's genetic, and I believe it. I grew up surrounded by it my whole life and was never tempted. Kaiser nods again, and they sip their coffee in silence for a moment. Then, did Sasha tell you anything about Emily's father? 
Not much. It didn't last long, and she mentioned he was a bit transient, always moving from place to place. I met him once. I didn't like that he was older, but he seemed nice enough. You met him? Kaiser says, surprised. He dropped her off one evening while I was taking the garbage out, forced him to talk to me. A small smile. He got out of the car. Handsome. Can I show you a photo? When she nods, Kaiser pulls out his phone. Is this the father? Caroline Robinson puts her glasses on, the seashells around her neck dangling. Yes, she says after a few seconds, peering at the screen. The photo was Calvin James's mugshot. He looked a lot different when we met, but that's him. I think his name was Kevin. Wait, no, that's not right. It was Calvin, like the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes. Kaiser lets out a breath. I know this was four years ago, but do you remember anything distinctive about him? Was his hair dark like in this picture? No, it was a lighter brown, longer, a bit shaggy. He had a scruffy beard and glasses. I also remember he had a tattoo on his wrist, here on the inside, she says, tapping the spot two inches below her palm. Calvin James had not had a single tattoo when Kaiser arrested him, so he'd have to have gotten inked in prison or soon after he escaped. What did it look like? It was a heart, Mrs. Robinson says. Red, but just the outline. I think there were initials inside, but I don't remember what they were. I only caught a glimpse of it when he shook my hand. Kaiser has a pretty good guess what the initials are. He thinks back to the sheet of paper Calvin doodled on during the trial. He'd drawn a heart. And inside it, G.S. For Georgina Shaw. Do you remember the car he was driving? She shakes her head. Oh, Lord, I don't know much about cars. It was nice, though, like a muscle car. American. Washington plates? I didn't look. Color? Kaiser couldn't imagine Calvin would still be driving the red Trans Am he'd had back in the day. Black, she says. I think. Not the same car, then. But Calvin James did like his American muscle cars. He'd been driving a blue Mustang the day Kaiser had arrested him near the Canadian border. Caroline Robinson stands, heading into the living room. She motions for Kaiser to follow her, and he does. On the living room end table is a framed photo, and she hands it to him. I know you saw Sasha dead, she says. This is what she looked like in life. She was only 18 here in her second trimester and completely clean. She was beautiful. There are tears in the woman's eyes, and her hands shake. Unfortunately, I don't have any recent photos of her. She isn't exaggerating. If anything, she's understating. Sasha Robinson was gorgeous. Tall, maddeningly curvy, her tawny skin tone the only hint of her black ancestry. Her eyes were dark, her hair long and brown. She appears to be sitting on one of the picnic tables in the courtyard outside the trailer, long legs crossed, her flowy dress disguising whatever pregnancy bump she might have had. Kaiser stares at the photo, his breath catching in his throat. Sasha Robinson is a dead ringer for Georgina as a teenager. The resemblance is not only striking, it's uncanny. Come to think of it, 
Claire Tolliver resembled Sasha, too. Long dark hair, golden complexion, voluptuous. Lush was the word Kaiser remembered thinking to himself. Like Sasha Robinson. Like Georgina Shaw. She was beautiful, Kaiser finally says, and he means it. Again, I'm so sorry for your loss. I won't keep you any longer, Mrs. Robinson. Thanks for your time. He heads back to the kitchen, finishes his coffee in one gulp, then quickly washes his mug in the sink, placing it on the dish rack to dry. When he turns back toward Mrs. Robinson, she's smiling. Your mama raised you right. Yes, ma'am. He smiles back. You're a lot more polite than the other person who came around the other day, asking questions about Sasha. Actually, when you knocked on the door, at first I thought you were him. Kaiser frowns. What other person? Oh, it was a week ago, maybe a little longer, she says. Some young man knocked on the door, said he worked for social services and was doing a follow-up on Sasha and how she was doing. She'd been to state-sponsored rehab twice and had recently reapplied for welfare, so I wasn't overly surprised at the visit. He got a bit rude when I told him she wasn't home, and when I refused to tell him where she was, he acted like I was personally trying to inconvenience him. I didn't like his attitude and told him so. These millennials, I tell you, they don't know how to move in the world if that makes any sense. Had you seen him before? Kaiser asks, his mind churning. It couldn't be Calvin, the woman would have said so. Plus, she just said he was younger. What did he want to know specifically? He asked a little about her drug use, and I said she was clean. Mainly, he wanted to know about the baby. He wanted to know where it ended up, whether it was a boy or girl, said that the records didn't show those things. I asked him why any of it mattered if Sasha was no longer the parent, after all, she'd been claiming welfare as a single person, not as a single mother. It surprised him. He didn't know Sasha had given the baby up for adoption. He asked for the name of the agency, and I gave it to him, hoping he'd leave. In hindsight, maybe I shouldn't have. Sasha had no legal claim to her child, so the adoption wouldn't be any of his business. Did he leave a card? Mrs. Robinson shakes her head. No, and I forgot to ask for one. I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. He was strange, and I didn't like him, and it made me defensive. The whole thing sounds weird to Kaiser. The woman was right to be suspicious. While it was common practice for the state to check up on a woman who'd had a baby applying for welfare, Sasha had given her child up. And according to her grandmother, she hadn't lied about that on her application. Did he tell you his name, at least? She shakes her head again. I'm sure he did at the beginning when he introduced himself, but I couldn't remember it by the end of the visit. You think this is related to Sasha's and Emily's deaths somehow? I'm considering every angle. It's all Kaiser can tell her. He opens the screen door and takes a step out into the cool afternoon air. By the way, detective, Mrs. Robinson says, her voice soft. How are Emily's parents doing? They're coping, he says. I imagine in their line of work, being surgeons and all, they deal with death every day. But not like this. Not so close to home, she sighs. When can I see Sasha? Ma'am, I, oh, right. 
Caroline Robinson's whole body sags. Oh, Lord, I forgot. She's, she's not. Her knees buckle and Kaiser catches her before she can fall. I'm sorry, she says, gasping. On some level, I braced myself for this day. Losing my daughter, losing my father, I thought I was prepared. But not for this. She was really trying to put her life back together. A sob escapes her lips and she quashes it before it can grow. I guess I have something to talk about in grief group this week. Grief group? She straightens herself, shaking Kaiser off gently and takes several deep breaths. Her glasses dangle on her heaving bosom. After a moment, she attempts a smile. It isn't for him. The smile is for herself. Self-reassurance that she's got this, that she'll be fine. He's seen it before on other mothers, grandmothers, and sisters who've just been told the worst possible news. I've been going for 20 years, she says. I lead the weekly meeting at St. Andrews, the church three blocks away. It's how I push through all this, detective. It's been one grief after another. How do you do it? It's none of Kaiser's business, but he honestly wants to know. He could kill Calvin James for a lot of reasons, and causing this admirable woman more heartache after everything she's already been through is one of them. How do you handle it? I just do, Caroline Robinson says. Someone has to be alive to remember them. If they're not remembered, then it's like they never existed in the first place. And so if not me, then who? She looks away for a moment, and then back at him. Who? Kaiser was present in the courtroom the day the judge sentenced Calvin James to four consecutive life sentences, one for each of the murders he committed, including Angela Wong. Georgina was not there. She was already in prison, so she missed the big show. After hearing several statements from bereaved family members of the victims, the sentence was read. The families cried. Justice was served, but in criminal cases, it doesn't feel like other victories. There's no reward. At most, there's a sense of relief, the closing of a chapter that never should have been written in the first place. But it doesn't fix the wounds of the injured. And it doesn't bring back the dead. Kaiser comforted Angela's parents that day in the courtroom. Candace Wong Platten hugged him tightly, whispered her thanks, and kissed his cheek, leaving a lipstick smear that would be rude to wipe away until after she left. Victor Wong had gripped Kaiser's hand with two hands, pumping his arms. Our girl can rest in peace, he said, tears in his eyes. Kaiser could only nod. He believed that the dead were already at peace. It was the living who suffered. Calvin James, clad in a suit and tie, looked over at Kaiser as the bailiff handcuffed him. In a few minutes, he'd be back in an orange jumpsuit. His attorney was packing up his briefcase. Calvin opened his mouth and appeared to say something, but Kaiser couldn't hear him above the din. He walked over. Are you trying to say something to me, he said. The two men weighed about the same and had similar builds, but Kaiser was an inch or two taller. Funny to think that when he was 16 and Calvin was 21, Georgina's boyfriend had seemed so much bigger, so much stronger, so much more intimidating. Now he was just a man, 
A murderer, yes, but a man growing older like the rest of them, with no special skills or training, just a lust for hurting women in the worst way possible. In a fair fight, Kaiser was 98% sure he could rip Calvin's throat out. I said I was surprised they didn't give me the death penalty, Calvin said. That's a conversation for your lawyer. Kaiser glanced over at the defense attorney, who was already talking on his cell phone, then back at Calvin. Would you have preferred that? I know I would have. The bailiff had Calvin by the arm and was beginning to move him toward the side door that led to the holding cells below. From there, he would be transported to Walla Walla, Washington, where he would spend the rest of his life in prison. People like me shouldn't exist, the Sweet Bay Strangler said, looking over his shoulder. You hear me, Kaiser? People like me should not exist. Kaiser's phone pings, bringing him back to the present. There's an email about the DNA results on Emily Rudd. Confirmed. She's Calvin's biological daughter. It's the least surprised he's felt since this all began. And it also confirms another important fact. Despite the few dubious sightings of the Sweet Bay Strangler across the globe over the years, Calvin James has been in the Seattle area at least twice since his escape from prison, long enough to have fathered two children. That's two times the serial killer has been close enough to catch, and two times that Kaiser didn't catch him. He heaves a long sigh and rubs his temples, feeling the onset of a headache. Kim is at her desk across from his in the precinct, working on something unrelated to the murders. TV shows make it look like cops work one case at a time until it's solved, and the bad guy, or girl, is arrested, tried, and convicted. In real life, it doesn't work like that. Kaiser juggles multiple cases. So does Kim. Sometimes they work cases together, sometimes they don't. She senses his eyes on her and looks up. He looks away. When he glances back again, she's up from her desk and heading toward the break room, presumably to get away from him. He's not angry she's back with her husband, especially considering she and Dave were never really apart. He's not even upset that she didn't talk to him about it first. Kim doesn't owe him anything. Kaiser knew the drill when they first hooked up, when things morphed from work to friendship to sex. But still, the sense of loss is there. He understands now how you can feel loss at the absence of something you never even really wanted in the first place. Kaiser was never fully invested in his personal relationship with Kim, and therein lies the problem. That space, that in-the-middle place somewhere in between being fully invested and not caring, simply isn't worth it. When you're in a relationship like that, it's rarely fulfilling, and all you can see is everything wrong with it. But when it's over, it stings and you still somehow feel like you've lost. His relationship with Georgina, however, is the exact opposite. There's no in-between with her, no gray area. There's no way to be with her just a little bit. He's either all in or all out. And after yesterday, he knows he's all in. He has no choice, really. Georgina is the woman he's loved since he was 14, and nothing, no amount of years, distance, or criminal activity can make that disappear. And it's fitting, really. Kaiser has a history of picking the wrong women. Georgina fucks with his head and his heart. She diminishes his capacity for good judgment. She brings out all his protective instincts, 
The fact that she's an ex-convict is the least of his issues with her. As a cop, he can't afford to love someone like that. But he does, and so be it. He can still remember how her hair smelled that night at Chad Fenton's party all those years ago, when she pressed against him in the laundry room, the length of her body touching the length of his. There was no place else he wanted to be. For a moment, the whole world disappeared. He can remember the softness of her lips and the scent of vodka-infused fruit on her breath. He remembers his physical arousal and the conflicting feelings of wanting her to know how he felt and not wanting to scare her. Nothing feels as powerful as longing for someone you can't have when you're 16. Georgina occupied all the places in his heart. The same way Calvin James occupied all the places in hers. I got a call from the lab, Kim says, and he looks up. She's back from the break room, two cups of coffee in hand. She places one on his desk and pulls her chair over. They confirmed there's no foreign DNA on Emily Rudd and Sasha Robinson, same as the other two. Kaiser nods, wishing she'd roll back to her own desk, although this is how they typically work. Thanks, he says, taking a sip of the coffee. The thing that bothers me, and I'm sure you've thought of this, Kim says, is that a lot of this doesn't fit with Calvin James's old M.O. I get that people can change, but serial killers tend not to. Their patterns are fixed. Most killers don't deviate from their way of doing things. Kaiser has thought about it, of course. But in the absence of other leads, he hasn't dwelled on it. Calvin James is still the best suspect they have. He dismembered Angela Wong, his first victim, but not the three he killed after that years later. Kim sips her coffee. But these last two females he dismembered again. And now he's killing children. And not just any children, his own. And not the way most parents who murder their children do, in a rage after a psychotic break of some kind. But deliberately, he's tracking them down, hunting them. He's escalating. Is he, though? Kim says. She's not being argumentative, but he can see she's trying to make a point. If not for Georgina, and where the bodies were buried, and the lipstick used on the kids, would we even think it was Calvin? He never used condoms before. His semen was found on the three earlier victims. But in these new murders, condom lube and spermicide were found both times. Not a speck of DNA anywhere. He's getting smarter. He knows we have his DNA. She shrugs. Why would he care? He's leaving the bodies in places that lead back to Georgina Shaw. He's using the lipstick that her old company now manufactures, which isn't widely available. He's drawing hearts on the children. He would know all of those things suggest it's him. So if he wants us to know, why not skip the condom so that we're certain? The last two victims got pregnant with his children, after all. Which suggests that when they were together, they didn't always use birth control. And why track them down now? The kids were two and four years old. What's the motivation for tracking down their mothers and killing them? And tracking down his biological children, both of whom were adopted into other families, and killing them, too. That takes work, planning, research, things he never did with Angela Wong or the three women he killed after her. Kaiser doesn't answer. He's considered all of these things, of course, but he's never laid it out as methodically and linearly as Kim just has. I think we're dealing with two different killers, Kai, she says. We still have to find Calvin, of course. 
but I feel strongly that we're looking in the wrong direction for the other one. His instinct is to argue with her and point out all the ways that she's wrong. But the problem is, she's not wrong. Play along, Kim coaxes as if she's reading his mind. Let's at least talk it out. Let's try and discuss these last two double homicides as if they're not related to Calvin James at all. Okay, Kaiser says with a resigned sigh. The mother and child thing is different. All by itself, usually the prime suspect would be the husband and father of the child, and we'd be looking at this as some kind of family annihilation. But we now have two mothers and two children killed in the same way. What ties them together further is that the women weren't raising their children. Both kids were given up for adoption. Right. So what kind of killer is attracted to a mother and child? Someone who wants to destroy that bond. Someone... Kaiser frowns and shakes his head. He's not enjoying this exercise. He's not an FBI profiler. He doesn't believe in digging too deeply into the psychosis of a crime. It's not his job, and it's risky because the chances he's wrong in whatever he comes up with are extremely high. Someone who wants to desecrate the mother. The rape tells us he wants to dominate her, cause her pain. Assuming she was raped, which we can't confirm. The dismemberment tells us he wants to humiliate her, to belittle her life and her very existence. But the children were unharmed before they were killed. Why? He doesn't want to cause them pain, but neither does he want them to live. And what does see me mean? Kaiser mulls it over, allowing the theories to swirl in his brain. He wants the child to see, no. He wants to be seen by the child, no. He wants someone else to see him, and the child is the messenger. A cold feeling washes over Kaiser as something occurs to him, something that stabs at him. His head snaps up. Jesus. Kim's nodding. Talk it out. The child is the messenger, he says, the words coming out slowly. He is someone's child. That's what the killer is trying to tell us. He is someone's child. Technically, we're all someone's child, Kim says, but there's a small smile on her face. She understands where he's going with this and is pushing him to get there quicker. That's the missing piece, Kaiser says, the chill washing over him. Whoever's child he is, wherever he came from, that's the key to this whole thing. Now let's try and tie the rest of it in. Kim leans forward. The bodies were found in two significant locations. The first is the woods near Georgina's house. Not just near it, right beside it. Kaiser is mentally kicking himself. He'd been so focused on the locations and the parts that tied into Georgina that he hasn't been properly thinking about the rest of it. Same place Angela Wong was buried. And the body was dismembered in the same way Angela's was, Head, upper arms, elbows, wrists, thighs, knees, ankles. Multiple shallow graves. The second site is the woods behind Georgina's high school. Victim was also dismembered. I know you don't believe in coincidences, but I need to point out that the locations could have been a coincidence, Kim says. There are only so many wooded areas in Sweet Bay. The killer might have chosen those locations simply because they worked. And he dismembered the bodies the same way as Angela? He shakes his head. 
Even if I could accept the burial sites as coincidences, the dismemberments can't be. But why do you think Angela was dismembered in the first place? Think about that for a minute, Kim says. We know she was cut up because her bones were found in multiple places, consistent with dismemberment. But there might not have been a psychosis behind it. The woods are dense, filled with rocks and tree roots. You can only dig so big and so deep a hole. Her dismemberment might not have been done for any other reason than practical. And if a new killer wanted to bury an adult body in those same woods, he'd probably be forced to do the same thing. It seemed odd to use the word practical to describe the reason for chopping up a body, but Kaiser understood her point. Okay. So the only real thing that ties Georgina to the new murders is the fact that the lipstick is from the company she worked for, Kim says. She was VP of lifestyle brands or something. I did a little Googling, found a five-year-old article in Pacific Northwest magazine that profiled ship pharmaceuticals in Georgina. She was quoted as saying that she was hoping to take the company in a new direction, and her plan was to build a cosmetics brand. She has an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering and an MBA, and she went to beauty school for a year. She had a valid cosmetology license, for Christ's sake. Creating a cosmetics line one day was her dream. The killer had to know, had to, that using a ship lipstick on the children, out of all the thousands of lipsticks to choose from, would get her attention. Well, we've known from the beginning that the new murders tie back to Georgina, he points out. Georgina, yes, but they don't necessarily tie back to Calvin, Kim says, pounding her fist on his desk for emphasis, causing him to jolt. We need proof, DNA, a witness, something, that Calvin James killed his own children. And we don't have it yet. Kim's right. Jesus Christ, she's so fucking right. Despite his best efforts to stay objective, Kaiser fell down the rabbit hole that no detective worth his badge should ever fall into. He was looking to make the evidence fit his theory, instead of creating a theory based on the evidence. He assumed that because everything tied to Georgina, Calvin had to be the killer. A potentially grievous assumption. He's someone's child, Kaiser says again softly, more to himself than to his partner. But whose? Kim stands up, rolls her chair back to her own desk. You should go talk to Georgina. You always said there were things she never told you. If there's anything left to know, you're probably the only person she'll tell. You guys have history. She trusts you. She says it lightly, but he sees it then. The stiffness of her body language, her lack of eye contact, the downturn of her lips. Married or not, the end of their affair is Kim's loss, too. That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Make sure to follow this podcast to get the next episode. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of Jar of Hearts wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Thank you.